we know that one of the most important skill sets that kids need to be successful in life today after they leave high school and while they're even in school is the capability to be collaborative with other people, to learn how to problem solve with other people, to be able to work with diversity in a group. And the setup of the old desk chair in row model doesn't lend itself well as a space for kids to be able to be collaborative. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Started Up Podcast, member of the Education Podcast Network. Today, I'm happy to have on Pam Moran. She is the former superintendent of Albemarle County Schools there in Virginia, and she's just coming off her retirement. Now, make no mistake about it, she's still going to be in and around education. She had quite the reputation for being a super passionate, super empowering superintendent, and uh, as you'll hear by her interview, she is still quite passionate about changing education. She has a new book. We get into that. But she also just kind of digs deep into some of the things th- that we need to see change. Although one of her gifts were, was, though she's super passionate about some of the things that we need to change in education, she's very patient and she's very understanding about why some schools haven't moved that fast, but still kind of gets you across the, you know, the threshold of we need to, we need to move now. So it's for these reasons, the diplomacy, the insight, just the sheer passion of this woman, I'm excited to share this episode. So enough of me talking. I know that you're going to thoroughly enjoy this one. Buckle in, take some notes, and enjoy Pam Moran. (laughs) Joining me live is Pam Moran. Pam, as soon as we started logging in, you started going in on awesome stories about uh, your school district. First of all, welcome to the show. Well, Don, I just have to tell you that it's a delight to be with you again and to chat. Um, I absolutely just love the work that you're doing with the young people in your world. And I love the startup work that the foundation is uh, uh, supporting up and, and the stories about uh, the uh, activities and, and the uh, interactions that occurred in New York recently. I was just like, wow, I was so disappointed <laughs> I couldn't be there. That just sounded fabulous it was it was but uh, so here we stand like this is ironic so number one i was running late because and of all people that said take your time because i was with my kids wanted to see a movie but here it is i stand on my last night of summer break right so i start back to school tomorrow and here you sit on your first what month and a half of retirement uh, just about you know <laughs> although my husband might say well what looks like retirement for Pam uh, looks yeah. like a full-time job from his uh, perspective. But um, uh, the thing that I will tell you is that I, I'm really trying to figure out, you know, it's been, I've been actually grieving the loss of, of the capability to just walk into a school and start interacting with kids and teachers, you know, all summer, because that's really what I it's the fuel that gives me the passion I still have today. Yeah. Somebody asked me recently, they said, so Pam, what's the difference between your first day of work and your last day of work? And I said, well, the first day I thought I was going to get fired. The last day uh, of work I spent out in schools. And all I can say is that I had that same passion for what it is that kids do, what teachers do, just that this is the greatest profession on earth. And that's never waned for me through 43 years. Okay, so what you're hearing right now is non, um, this is Pam, 
this is Pam all the time. She's this excited about things. Matter of fact, before I started pressing record, it was funny. Like we logged on and you started getting into stories already about you meeting with Chance and doing some things already. And I'm like, wait, hey, you're retired and you're already going to school events. But, but back to my point, this is what you hear and this is what you get with, with, with Pam. And I, I met you, gosh, again, seven years ago. Um, I believe uh, it was in... Um, uh, Tennessee. And, and uh, uh, I think uh, Grant Lichtman brought me out and, and I, I'm pretty sure that's where I met you the first time. Yeah, I was like, it was Memphis, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. You were mythical. I was like, wait, wait, superintendents don't, huh? What? And it was funny because I, I thought I was on the, um, you know, so I was onto some things here and there and you were practicing this and you were empowering your teachers to take these risks. And so it was there that uh, my admiration for you grew. Um, but over the years, and here's what I'm just going to kick off with. And it's kind of a tough question. Over the years, I think that people have caught up to what you were wanting to do 10 years ago. Are you happy about that? Or are you dissatisfied that it took a lot of schools 10 years? Well, I, I will tell you that, you know, I think about the work that educators do similarly to what I think about uh, in terms of kids in a classroom, and that is that kids are on a developmental continuum, and some of them are in front of the starting line, and some of them are on the starting line, and some of them are behind the starting line, and that the job of a really good teacher is to take kids wherever they are and be able to help move them so that they're making progress and always moving forward. And I think of the school districts across the United States as being really similar to that, that there are people that have, um, for all the years that, that Albemarle has been in a mode of trying to, to always see beyond the horizon, perhaps it's because of the fact that, um, that Albemarle County is the origin site for um, uh, Lewis and Clark, and I've always been taken with the story of the voyage of discovery to the West Coast and, in fact, discovered Tim Lauer, who at one point in time was uh, a principal in Oregon. And he was a principal of Meriwether Lewis School on the um, final destination point for the, the Lewis and Clark expedition. And I had a Meriwether Lewis School in Albemarle County, which was a half a mile from where Meriwether Lewis grew up. And so it was really fascinating because kids did some project work together. But I think about that, that idea of that we're all on this journey together and some people are explorers and they get out beyond the horizon. And some people are pioneers who say, well, the explorers are out there, I can follow. And, you know, maybe they, um, they uh, see themselves as not quite as challenged as the folks that are uh, really navigating out in front of the pack. And then there are people that kind of sit around and wait and say, you know, I'm, I'm willing to get on the train, but I'm not going to get on that train until those people that are out there in front have kind of settled some of the turf. And that's the group of people that are your settlers. And then there are people that just quite frankly want to stay, you know, where they are. And, you know, and the East Coast was just fine for them. And so I think that our schools are the same way, that people are all over the map in terms of whether they're explorers or pioneers or settlers or people that really want to stay put. I think probably the toughest job that anybody has as an administrator is if people are all moving, you as an administrator are probably feeling some success. Um, you're seeing progress, whether it's your kids or whether you're, it's your staff. If you've got people that aren't moving or maybe even a faculty that's struggling to move, that it puts you in a position where, you know, you, you, had this sense of frustration. And, and the real challenge, I think, for educators anywhere is 
what do you do when you have people who really are very comfortable staying in the position they're in? And that was the, the real topic of my dissertation. I had a, a question of, that was based on the idea that some teachers continue to develop and hone their skills and expertise across their careers, and some people don't. What differentiates the two uh, positions that teachers sometimes take? And what I found when I went out and interviewed experienced educators who had been people identified as teachers who had continued to evolve and develop their practice, I found that some of those people had had stories where they said, I spent the first 15 years of my career basically doing the same thing. And this one teacher said, one day I was sitting in class and I was having the kids read Round Robin from the textbook. And all of a sudden I looked at them and I thought, they're bored to death and so am I. And this teacher at that moment in time realized that she had been living a life that was a repetition of the same day over and over and over again. Kind of like that movie Groundhog Day. Yeah. And she began to change. So I think you can't underestimate that there is a potential for any person, even people that are, whether it's at the district level, the school level, or the classroom level, people who are not seeing themselves as capable of changing or even desiring to make changes. At some point in time, there may be something that somebody does that sets in motion a change. For her, the thing that she discovered was the, uh, the National Writing Project. And she began to change the way she thought about teaching kids literacy in a very different way that was much more process-oriented versus that old style of teaching that, that uh, around literacy that occurred back uh, in the day. So, so I, I never underestimate the power of any person to change. Um, I, it's been great to see other school systems catching up and even, I think, in some places accelerating past Albemarle. I don't think that, um, you know, I think there's a whole group of people out there. I would, would put some of the work that, that you guys are doing up against the best of the best in the country. And I know that, you know, that, that you probably can look around and say, boy, we're not at the top of the mountain yet either. But if people are seeing that, that they can move, and that you're constantly getting pushed and pulled and allowed to uh, really take risk. And that, for me, is the big issue, Don, whether it's the work that your kids are doing with startups and entrepreneurship or our teachers do. If they feel that they have someone who has their back to take some risk and they get the support they need, you start to see people uh, take some risk that you would not have anticipated would. And, yeah. and that for me is what's been going on all over this country is that people are starting to emulate the work you're doing. Well, I, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, there, there's only a couple things that, well, first of all, on your, on your story of the lady that, you know, didn't want to repeat things. I, I do have to say and credit my, my dad it was probably my favorite thing I wrote uh, in my book is that, you know, my, <laughs> I wasn't always a teacher. My first three years out of college, I had a nice job and, uh, my parents had paid for all of my education and I asked my dad, I'm like, hey, I think I'm going to go back to school. And which, by the way, I was already married and I wasn't asking him for money. But the best advice I ever got and most innovative advice I ever got about education was when I told him I was going to go back and be a teacher. And again, like my sister was a teacher. My dad was a teacher. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. But that makes her a teacher. I was like, I, I, I want to go and I teach. And, and my dad's like, I don't care if you teach for the next 20 years. Just promise me you won't teach one year 20 times. And that has always stuck yeah. with me. 
that I've always wanted to, to throw out what didn't work and then add to what did, and then maybe I repeat some things that were quality. But my only pushback is, is that it, while I had my dad to kind of rely on that, the, um, and, and you know what, L- let me also throw some people a bone because I remember my first, gosh, uh, five or so years of teaching, we'd go into the, here we go, the first day of school meetings. And this year's theme would be, and this year's buzzword would be, and a lot of the veteran teachers would whisper over to each other like, hey, shut your doors and this will all be over with by, you know, December. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, they were right. I mean, some cases, there were years that we just followed a trend for the sake of the trend. And then three years later, the trend was proven to be not so good. And so I understand why some teachers are reluctant to follow the buzzword. However, in, in my findings here lately, and I guess this is why I'm so charged up, is that never before have we moved so fast out of education. The, the, the automation, the, the internet of things that, that's going to really upend a lot of what we used to know and the, the careers we used to prepare our kids for, those careers are going to be obsolete. And, and I always like to think like historically, like I would have liked to have been in the room when some teachers decided like, you know what, let's just not teach Greek anymore because it's not preparing our kids for the future. So when are we going to have and I respect what you're saying, like some schools move faster than others, but the schools that are lagging behind, it's just now, it's dangerous to be this far behind. Oh, you are, you are uh, right on target because I tell you what, um, and you know, I, I've laughed about the fact that, that you and some of the others that represent younger generations that are working in schools today. And quite frankly, Don, you know, I don't think that uh, your age is necessarily the uh, indicator of whether you are going to continue. I was going to say, uh, I'm I'm 46. Yeah, yeah, I'm 46. You know what, in the, in my big scheme of life, you're, you're, you know, 46 going on 20. So I'll take it. I'll take it. But, um, but one of the things that I think about is that um, we've never seen the pivot that's occurring right now in the ways that technology is changing the world, changing the nation, changing our states, changing our communities and changing our homes and, and workplaces. And it's, it's radical, it's exponential, it's Moore's law um, on steroids. And, you know, I mean, I've had to teach myself how to install all these smart things so that my husband is handicapped can literally go into rooms and turn lights on and off and so forth and so on. And um, I think to myself, how many people that are my age, because I'm retired, are really taking the risk to learn how to do that? And, and I've learned from my kid that, you know, that, that technology is something that I have to really work at that comes very naturally to him. He's a, a millennial. But then, you're, then you've got your kids that are Gen Zs, and they're in a whole different place. But the reality is that everything about our lives is changing because of the changes in technology. And people can argue the good, the bad, and the ugly of that, but it's here, and it's going to radically shift every aspect of our world. When I look at what our kids are doing today with VR technologies, and I think, wow, this is amazing. One of the things that's my follow-up thought is this is the most primitive VR technology that will exist in our schools. And I try to project out what it's going to be like in 10 years. I can't imagine what will be different about the uses of and what kinds of new technologies that will make VR tech tech, uh, obsolete. It's just changing 
all of the options and opportunities that kids have. And what it's creating, unfortunately, between teachers who embrace technology as tools that extend the bandwidth, it doesn't replace other things that, that we believe, I think, that are important in terms of traditions of education. Um, but what it does is expands bandwidth. And it gives kids lots more opportunities on that continuum. And teachers that, that um, resist that or refuse to go down the path of learning that are denying their kids something that other kids are getting. And it's creating, I, I don't know whether you want to even call it a digital divide. It's, um, it's a machine age divide in terms of, of what kids uh, are given in, in terms of opportunities in schools and yeah. out of school. And so for me, um, they, we, we've really got to take it on. And then, you, you know, you layer the te technology is just a tool. I mean, a pencil is a, is technology, a, you know, a paintbrush is technology um, from a different time. And it's still very valuable technology in certain um, arenas, you know, as you need it. But the reality is that um, we have to really think about what it is that our kids are able to do as a result of the tools in their hands. And I think about kids that are able to connect with experts all over the world. They're able to find authentic audiences for the work that they do. They're able to hone skill sets that will give them um, competencies that they'll be able to transfer forward across probably multiple careers in their lifetimes. And we should embrace that. We should love that about this time in our lives. You know, I think of myself as a, having the, the, um, the opportunity to be able to be a part of a um, turning point, just like the printing press was a turning point in history, where we are with uh, the smart machine age is a turning point, and how cool it is to be able to be a part of that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, um, there's a lot of times people, when, uh, kind of going back to the people that are skeptical on the, you know, oh, buzzword innovation, buzzword entrepreneur, um, one of the things that I've seen kind of not, I, I love it. I think it's a really cool movement. And sometimes like people to say, it's just furniture, but you've been a pretty big, uh, proponent of learning spaces and yes, it does center sometimes around furniture. Um, but explain to people that aren't necessarily privy to the learning space movement. What is it and why isn't it important? Well, I, I'll go back that. You know, when, when we had kids in one-room schoolhouses, we had a very different environment and very different pedagogies and very different ways of kids interacting. You know, it was multi-age. You had kids interacting with a lot of actually, interestingly enough, hands-on materials. There was a real, you know, there was a real progressive movement in the 1800s around the one-room schoolhouse when you had that urbanization of America that, that followed uh, the... Uh, the industrial age um, of the time, that what you ended up with is a real effort to standardize schools that were uh, turned into, uh, you know, the factory schools, the cells and bells schools, uh, the dominant teaching wall schools. And the reality is that, that the goal was a kind of passivity in learners where they would not challenge authority, they would not move ahead, that they became grade banded and, um, all of a sudden, you had a situation where the expectation was that most of those people would get a basic education. A lot of them would drop out and go to work in factories or mills in the Deep South, and a very few would graduate 
And of the very few that graduated, many of them were expected to go into more clerical kinds of jobs, um, uh, which is why that, that uh, some of the math that was put into the, the uh, curriculum in the Committee of Ten was really oriented towards either people going into things that were more engineering, science-oriented fields, or going into fields where they were more clerical out of that middle-class group, and then a lot of people just going to work in factories. But the goal was being able to, to create a compliance um, in terms of, of the kids as they were coming through school to sort and select them so that, that uh, the ones that um, needed to go to work on the uh, assembly lines would be able to drop out and go do that. My granddad was an example of that. He didn't, I think he finished eighth grade and then he went to work um, in a, a mill in, um, in North Carolina. And so, you know, you think about we created generation after generation after generation feeding that model of economic um, sustainability in the United States through the, the, whether it was steel mills or whether it was through, um, you know, auto plants or whether it was through the cotton uh, mills in, of the Deep South. Um, we don't need people who are in that mode today and it, you can't look at any sourcing of information around what kids need to know, understand, and be able to do to be successful in today's world. Um, we know that, that the whole idea of college is being challenged intensively in terms of, do we really need um, to have college as the, the, um, the, the end in mind for kids graduating from high school? Or are there a lot of other options for kids that uh, they can, can pursue after high school? But the most important thing for me is that the learning space piece shifted that model from the dominant teaching wall, desk and rows, where I looked at the back of your head and you looked at the back of my head, and it didn't matter because we weren't going to talk for, for class time unless it was I talked to the teacher and the teacher talks to me. We know that one of the most important skill sets that kids need to be successful in life today after they leave high school and while they're even in school is the capability to be collaborative with other people, to learn how to problem solve with other people, to be able to work with diversity in a group. And the setup of the old desk chair in row model doesn't lend itself well as a space for kids to be able to be collaborative. So we've really gone after giving kids a lot of different choices in our, our uh, redesign of classrooms where kids have opportunities that they can work individually, you know, and we think that's uh, something that's important to be able to do some of the time for them to be able to work in small groups and be very collaborative around project work and for kids to be able to also still be sometimes in those traditional um, class uh, opportunities where they are, you know, listening to a teacher. I think about the fabulous storytelling that goes on in some of our history classes and kids are enthralled with some of the teachers that, that are such great storytellers in, in the context of history. But if that's all they do and they don't ever get a chance to work together on meaningful, authentic projects, then most of that information just goes right out the window for them pretty, pretty quickly. They'll remember perhaps some of the big concepts, but they aren't going to remember most of that, that information they've had to memorize for other people's tests, as I call state tests. And so, you know, I look at, um, you know, we had a, a project this past year that was funded by the National Writing Project. And, you know, we had that horrific event in Charlottesville in August of last year, just a couple of weeks away is the anniversary. And the, the teachers that had put that together had um, 
really wanted the kids to study the concept of memorials and monuments and what stories give rise to who gets selected to get um, a monument or a memorial. And, you know, they were a little worried about whether the kids would get connected with that as a topic. They thought they would, but they, you know, because it had been, you know, the Confederate uh, statues in Charlottesville had been, you know, certainly out there in front of people for a little while. After that event, the relevance of kids' sense of what those monuments meant and the controversies around them made that such an incredibly, incredibly um, relevant project for the kids. What the kids ended up doing with that, and we had hundreds of kids across our high schools engaged in this, this work around monuments and memorials, is they started going out and finding what are the stories that are not told through monuments and memorials? What's the hidden history of people who have had tremendous impact that didn't get a monument, didn't get a memorial? And they picked out those stories and ended up creating, in some cases, virtual monuments. In some cases, they built models. They couldn't have done that project in a classroom where I get to see the back of the person and the head of the person in front of me. You know, they needed to be able to be face-to-face. They needed to be able to do field experiences, not trips, but experiences. They needed to be able to construct together. They needed to be able to work at nighttime, whether it was in Google or whether it was in some other platform. Um, There were kids that made Minecraft um, uh, memorials. Um, and constructed them that were pretty amazing in terms of the sophistication. So it, it, for me, what those kids walked out with is an incredibly important and powerful focus on something that is relevant to history that goes back, you know, 5,000 years. There have been monuments and memorials being built across time. They also walked out with a sense that Um, behind those are also the stories of people who didn't get uh, a memorial. And so it, it, for me, is about what's the context that kids take with them that will cause them for the rest of their lives to really engage with history in powerful ways. And I think that, that, you know, you hear kids a lot talk about they, they, they don't like history. They don't like history class. We've heard that for years. When you give kids a way to make history authentic and real, all of a sudden you have kids that start to dig deep in and find a reason why history is important to them. And they're able to transfer that into the bigger picture of their lives. You know, it becomes multidisciplinary. It's not just about memorizing dates and knowing when the Spanish Armada sailed, 1588. Um, It's about... um, them being able to have a context for the big themes of history. And that's about literature. It's about art. It's about culture. It's about geography. It's about science. It's about math. So that's, um, that's you know, an example of the shift in spaces in our schools isn't necessary for teachers to be able to do that kind of work. But boy, does it amplify and maximize the capabilities for teachers and kids to work in a very different kind of space. And so we've, we've really championed that. Um, we're getting ready to open up this wild and crazy um, um, Albemarle Tech that Iris Sokol, who's the Chief Technology and Innovation Officer for Albemarle, has been um, working for uh, the last 10 months almost nonstop to pull off opening um, a, a, a new space for kids 
across our high schools to be able to come and work on projects that they have a real interest or even some some cases passion for and to do that in what essentially was a warehouse space that's been converted into sort of a multi-purpose center for for the school division and so you know I look at that kind of work and I think you know people have to be able to pivot fast in this day and age in education you got to be able to move quickly to take advantage of what the opportunities are in the moment and you know I've always said and I, I say in the book timeless learning that that's rolling out right now um, they'll publish on August 7th, that the reality is that, you know, a superintendent should never let a good idea have a strategic plan get in the way of being able to implement it. And so, you know, when you think about, you know, I've had had superintendents say to me, boy, we really love this maker work, Pam, but we've got this strategic plan and I, we really can't find a place for that. And I've always had the, the perspective that school divisions, school districts should have four kinds of work going on all the time. They should have invention work, which is those explorers who are out there um, coming up with ideas and trying things out that nobody else is trying out. You should have innovation bucket of of work that's uh, people that are taking those ideas that other people are sort of uh, testing out in the field. And they're they're the ones that are going to kind of shape and craft it and make it go viral. And then you got the strategic work, which says, you know what, this innovation work is really making a difference for kids. Let's drive that deep into the organization through strategy. And so that's a bucket. And then you got the operational space where you say, you know, some things just at some point in time become so routinized that they're just a part of operations. But if you don't have an an invention and uh, innovation bucket of work going all the time, then you're going to be behind the the S curve in terms of being able to... uh, um, continue to be able to meet your kids' needs. And I believe that wholeheartedly. And so that's why, you know, I think that, that you know, whether you're a, a private sector business, if you aren't innovating up your work at the same time that you're operationalizing what was the work you innovated yesterday, that you're going to basically lose your business pretty quickly because that S-curve will flatten out and other people will, will move past you. And so that's that's something that's on my mind. I'm, I don't see myself in competition with other other school divisions. I like to think that we learn from from you know we call them divisions in Virginia, but districts. I like to think that we learn from people all over the United States and all over the world. You know, we've been informed by work of people in Australia, or New Zealand, Ireland, Germany, um, Scandinavia, Canada, uh, you know, South America. Um, you know, I've got examples everywhere in the system where people, as a result of connectivity, have been able to, to move things forward that they've learned from other people. We've got people from Albemarle that follow you, Don, and, you know, I think that you probably push, you know, people like Chance here and Dave Glover and folks that work with our studios and entrepreneurship. You know, what you're doing pushes them to think about what else is possible that we're not doing. So, um, space is another way of accommodating that kind of work in a school environment and move us out of that compliance-based uh, world. But it's not easy. Um, you know, it's uh, uh, not everybody's there. So you just have to constantly be working on how do you get people taking the risk to move something. I say to people when I've been on the road and uh, we talk about, you know, change, I say, you know what? If you don't walk out of here today and go back to your school district tomorrow, to your classroom, and do something that's different, then you're not going to really have 
probably change anything ever. You'll maybe say, well, that was a really great session with Pam. But the reality is most of the time people go to workshops, they go to conferences and they don't leave and do anything with it when they get back to their own, uh, you know, place where they're living inside a school. My goal is to cause people to really develop a level of dissonance that causes them to go change something. I had some a teacher write me one time in a DM and she said, you know, when you said go back and change something tomorrow, I didn't feel like I had any control over really much of anything. And she did this sort of a little bit of a dialogue piece with me in a, a Twitter DM, but said, I went back and just said to the class, if you would prefer to stand up at some point, because that's what you need, and it may be while I'm lecturing, or it could be while you're working on a project, or you're reading, if you need to do that, that's fine. And she said, I had a kid who had bounced out of my class multiple times over the course of the year, probably ADHD, if you want to use that as a label. She said, that was the first day he had stayed in class in some time, because he could stand up. She said, that's all I changed, was letting that kid stand up. So you think about change is not something that has to cost a lot of money. You can sometimes make a simple change that'll make a radical difference in the life of a kid just by letting them stand up. How crazy is that? Yeah, I love that. Well, Pam, um, you broke the record. That was the least amount of questions I've ever had to ask on a on a podcast. Well, but, I don't know. I tell you, you and Gary Vaynerchuk were quite the, 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 uh, the, the duo the night I listened to y'all. <laughs> yeah, Gary, Gary, Gary's passionate as well. Yeah, uh, but, but, but what I, but, I said that, that uh, to my kid, you know, who works with, with uh, VaynerMedia, I said, I've never seen anybody really keep up with the pace of Gary until I heard Don Wetrick interview <laughs> Oh, it was a fun back and actually it was a year ago today. Um, was it really? Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. Well, I, so Pam and, and what I hope everybody here, well, first of all, you know, before I get into that, tell everybody where they can find you, book, everything. Oh, wow. Well, you know, our book, and it's a, uh, it's a narrative of contemporary, what I call contemporary progressive educational narrative. Um, it's the story of, of educators and kids in, in our system, but beyond our system, you know, we, we've worked with people and we've feel like that people have informed our work and we've informed their work all over the country. And we've tried to capture that. We've tried to capture the why of the changes that we've been making um, and looking at sort of the history of, of education. So it's, a, it's not a, 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 um, a book for the faint hearted. I mean, it, it hopefully will create dissonance. Um, we like to think that somebody could read it by themselves individually and use um, what we call sort of a design for learning that's at the end of each uh, of the chapters to be able to really dig in and take some actions and do some reflection and uh, um, actually to provoke people. Um, we uh, think that it's important to provoke people to get them to think. And the name of the um, book is? And the name of the book is Timeless Learning, How... Imagination, observation, and zero-based thinking change schools. And you can find it pretty much anywhere on the internet, whether it's Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Wiley Press, which is the uh, the publication firm that uh, we worked with. And um, I like to think that people will find this to be a refreshing look at what's possible. And as uh, somebody said to us that came and visited Albemarle County from uh, the New York Hall of Science and was in one of our high schools and said, you know what, you guys are the antidote to yeah, but. <laughs> and I have always yeah. loved that. So I That's like awesome. to think that we're the what if um, space, not the yeah, but space. 
and hopefully our book captures that. And they can find you on Twitter at? Twitter at, at Pam Moran, P-A-M-M-O-R-A-N. Yes, two uh, M's. Very two good. M's, right back to back. Well, Pam, I sincerely appreciate it. Guys, this is really normal. I mean, Pam, when you wind her up, like literally when I started, like we, we just logged on and she started going and she was all excited and that's Pam. And uh, going back to you saying, I don't know what I'm going to do in retirement. You're not going to be retired. You're going you're gonna to do all sorts of things. And for that, uh, I, I've always just, I, I love how you lead and I love how you empower. And, uh, you know, gosh, if, if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, boy, I'm a superintendent would like to, you know, see what she thinks about this man. She gets back and she's just, uh, she's a whole, I'm sorry. I'm speaking for you, Pam, but she's always been helpful. And she's always been that superintendent who empowers teachers, principals, everybody. So, um, if you're a teacher, you're a principal, if you're a parent, I recommend you pick up her book and, uh, gosh, if you have questions, uh, like she's, no, really just, no, just, you know, and as I say to folks, I'm just Pam. And so that's the way I live my life. And, um, I, uh, have you know? I, I adore the work that you're doing with your kids, Don, and and I just have to say, uh, you know, bat, right back at you. People uh, uh, should take advantage of the fact that you're so generous with your time and your uh, willingness to help people get started on this work. And that's what it's all about. When you and I and a whole host of other people can make this work go viral, we will have done something. We will have changed the nature of education as has existed in this country since the Committee of Ten. And our kids will be better for it. Our school cultures will be better for it. And our communities and our world will be better for it. And I just um, appreciate that you gave me a chance to kind of go off tonight. (laughs) Thank you. No, it was my pleasure. All right, there you go. Pam Moran, thank you so much for being our guest. You're most welcome. 